There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, massive wins at the bottom of the Premier League table for Everton and Nottingham Forest. Will it be enough to keep them up? Leicester City and Southampton are beaten. Are they on their way to the Championship? We'll discuss both of those and big games at the top as well as Arsenal clawed Manchester City's lead back to one point with victory at Newcastle United. We'll also ask what's going wrong for Manchester United and also Gregor Robertson joins us after completing the 92 grounds of the English Football League. This is the game. Hello again and welcome back to the game podcast. Hope everyone had an enjoyable coronation weekend. Less said about it, the better. Let's talk about the football. Um, Everton scintillating on the counter-attack. They got a huge victory this weekend to stun Brighton in the Premier League. Um, I'm Hugh Wisencroft, by the way, alongside Tom Clark and Alison Rudd on the game uh, this Monday morning. So excited about Everton's win that I skipped over that. But there you go, 5-1 in the end. And it moves Everton out of the relegation zone. They now sit 17th and they leapfrog Leeds and Leicester City, who will come to a little bit later on. Uh, Sean Dice said it showed that there is still life in the team. I think the victory for Everton and the manner of it was a huge boost and a message to everyone that they are not done, particularly the teams around them. And I think the psychological aspect out of this game was huge. It wasn't just beating Brighton away. It wasn't a 1-0 by the skin of your teeth. It was a team that really showed something. And if they can show that level, even close to that level again, they will pick up more results and more results will obviously mean survival. They, Everton, look, if you if you dropped in from Venus and you didn't know who was who in the league, you would think Everton were fighting for the title. You'd think, wow, they're streetwise. They've got, they've got everything, haven't they? They've got pragmatism, pace, um, imagination, a sort of brutality about them, ability to take advantage of your opponent's weaknesses. I mean, I actually think they got lucky that that's probably the worst first half Brighton have had. But the way they took advantage of it is the way that champions elect take advantage of stuff. It was so bizarre. Unbelievable match. Absolutely unbelievable. And yes, second half, Brighton woke up, four changes were made and they did what they did against Fulham at home not so long ago where they peppered the goal and just couldn't find a way through and... Pickford was looking in one of those moods where he will save most stuff. But even then, Everton, you didn't get the sense they were panicking or worrying. Pickford kept pointing to his head and telling everyone to concentrate. And you thought, it just made you think, wow, they're a team of leaders. And how amazing to be able to cope with a game of two halves so well. So they took advantage of the gaps available when there were gaps. And then when there were not, for a lot of the second half... They were able to absorb absorb the pressure and not panic. Like I say, they 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 just looked like, well, this is a phase of the game we can handle. And then on the break, they were devastating and cocky and cheeky. It was, I don't know who they were, but if if, it, if that's all you saw of Everton all season, you would think, I think I'll tip them for the title. Mm, Gary Jacobs' uh, report in the Times this morning described it as bewildering, which I think, having listened to your very accurate description, Alison. That, that to me, sums it up as well. It, it, I was thinking about this game, and we're going to come on to talk about Leicester and Fulham as well. But it's this strange thing that I also think has factored into this relegation battle this season, where you have teams like Brighton who just dip when they play a team near the bottom at the wrong moment for them, but at the perfect moment for Everton. And Everton then get this huge win. But then if you think about, you can't just summarise it as, oh, well, it's the team that they've got nothing left to play for. Because you could say the same about Fulham, who, of course, turned it on, having been poor of late against Leicester. Leicester probably thought that. Um, 
you know, going to Craven Cottage, they've, they've kind of sacked it off a little bit. They've been struggling of late. It, this is a chance here. They get completely rolled over. So it, it was that perfect cocktail of all those things coming into it. It did make me go back, though, to, we were discussing it on Thursday's show, that 2-2 draw with Leicester that Everton got, which I thought they played well in that. They showed more attacking intensity. They showed, showed that they were like more on the front foot. They were creating chances. Um, I can't remember exactly the stat, but Gregor pointed out that they created uh, at least in the teens number of chances, which they haven't done barely all season. And then you had the Pickford save, and it just felt a little bit like this is the little wind of momentum. Whether or not they'll keep it going, who knows with this season, they'll lose the next match 3-0. But it, it, it was all of those things, that cocktail that led to a kind of bewildering match, as Gary Jacobs said. Yeah, I don't think they're putting much pressure on the next match because it's against Manchester City, but... Listen, uh, Sean, if one man can do it, it's Sean Dyche. He did it against an informed Arsenal team early in the season, didn't yeah, he? So yeah, yeah. you never know. Uh, they've got Wolves and Bournemouth in their final two games, so I think they will look to those two to be the matches that keep them up. But um, for me, it was just more about the spirit determination, particularly away from home. Again, they're a team that kind of, we, we think... You know, at Goodison Park, they're a different animal to the one that goes away from home. To be honest, they've not been great either home or away for, for quite some time. And it was just, it was a weird, it was a very perverse thing to see in terms of the confidence with which some players played. It was like we'd been transported to another season. It was mm. like, who are you? Where have you come from? Where were you last week or the week before that? Because it wasn't just, it was weird. You know, Dwight McNeil... It was a it was a it was a player from when he burst into the Burnley team at the start of his career. It was a player who was, you know, played with so much freedom. It yeah, was brilliant it, finishes, like real yeah. real confidence, as you say. The one where he tiptoed round the goalkeeper when in an, in that situation, in that context, for this match at this point in the season, you wouldn't have been surprised no. if he shanked it wide this or blazed it. it over, tiptoes round the goalkeeper. I think even at the bollocks to do a celebration before he put it in the net didn't he I mean I was like this guy which again fits in with Alison's theory that if you were watching them you're thinking oh these guys are loving it they've had the best season ever so excited celebrating goals before they score them you're like mate chill out you might get beat next week and you'll be back in the scrap it boggled my mind completely to be honest I'm sure the Everton fans were in dreamland and they mentioned Jordan Pickford I guess it's worth remarking on the fact, because a lot of people say, you know, Arsenal have been great this year and Aaron Ramsdale has to be England's number one, that his form has been good to very good to getting great at this point in time. He seems to be improving and in, strangely enjoying, although not strangely for Jordan Pickford, the situation that they're in, because it brings something out of him as a character, I think, um, that that helps his goalkeeping. Mm. He always struck me as a quite a reactionary figure as well obviously in his position that's an important part of his game but do you know what I mean like some goalkeepers are composed and they come and claim everything and they look really at ease and calm Pickford is one of those where he's kind of making sharp saves he needs that frenzy a little bit and you obviously get that with a relegation scrap and he needs those moments is and I Alison your point about him kind of pointing to his head and saying composure lads He's almost kind of saying that to everyone else because he's like, oh, "No, I'm loving this." That, you know, you can yeah. send, you, he, he does that in the most manic and uncomposed moments. He does, yeah, yeah. uncomposed <laughs> way. You know, people were picking out when he saved the penalty um, against Leicester, and I think they were still two one down at that point. But he kind of did this little celebration, and it was half time. And it, but you know, I was in the office, and a lot of people were laughing at him. And I was like, "No, no, he needs he needs that." Yeah, and maybe his players feed off that as well a little bit because. I think people forget, like, he's an incredibly experienced player now. Like, he's played a lot of games for England. He's played in big international tournaments. And as you say, he's stepping up in these moments when they really need him. Can I just say also about Sean Dyche? Because we're, we're, we've used words like bewildered and boggled and so on. Mm -hmm. But he, when he was at Burnley, he was very good at thinking of ways to freshen it up. Because he was there for a long time and sometimes they'd be doing surprisingly well in the league but most of the time they were struggling and yet he would always somehow get them to respond and people would suggest maybe you know it's time for him to go before he did go because maybe it was a bit stale but he he was very aware of that and would come up with ways of just inspiring them and so I suspect what's happened is he's seen He's seen the spectre of them going down and looking. Let's not face, you know. Let's face it. Everton have looked a bit like like they're not going to do it, mm. and yet this this has not come out of magic. This has come out of him 
whatever the, whatever he's been telling them in training or little things he's been trying, little tricks he's been trying, little motivational speeches, he's done something to really boost their self-esteem and the idea that it's not over. He will, It will be down to him. It's not an accident. I, I want to ask whether you think Everton will stay up because there is also part of me who wants to revel in the, them scoring five goals and you know, finishes into the top corner and some players, you know, just playing out of their skin. But it was very much, you know, it was this 90 minutes. It was an episode of Doctor Who. (laughs) I was in a different universe, let's be honest, compared to some of the football that we've seen from them of late. And it's a a huge question mark as to whether they can produce, like I said, I said, if they they produce anywhere near this, they'll get results. Like, they haven't produced anywhere near this for quite some time, really. So can they do it in those final three matches? Can they stay in the Premier League? It's probably down to, we talked about them scoring goals and you highlighted Dwight McNeil. I was looking at this team and I was thinking, this is the most attacking Everton can be, really, whilst also still being with their best players and all the kind of characteristics that a Sean Dyche team wants to be. But actually, all that means is that Dwight McNeil and Dominic Calvert-Lewin are playing. When you talk about being attacking, do you know what I mean? And yes, Decore got forward and scored goals, but he again epitomised the kind of, oh, who's this guy? Chelsea will be buying him for £80 in the summer, won't they? Off this one game. So it'll be down to Calvert-Lewin staying fit. It'll be down to whether McNeil can kind of keep that twinkle-toed confidence going to the end of the season. Um, and you wouldn't be surprised if they didn't. You wouldn't be surprised if this was their one game. And they then it wouldn't shock me if Everton then lost the next three, even after mm, this. That's, the, that's the point about this season. I think, and it, this comes back to Alison's point, I think because of, only because of Sean Dyche, I don't think it will be a case of them now losing the next three. I think he will make sure that they take something from this into those two games that you highlight and and they could have it just enough to then get over the line. Brighton have previously been booed off. Um, uh, that was a different team at a different time um, who had drawn a match under Graham Potter and I remember him famously coming out and saying, you know, these fans need a dose of reality, etc., etc. Not in those exact words, but essentially, you know, we are still bright and we've come a long, long way. Maybe these fans need a history lesson, something along those lines. Anyway, they were booed off at half-time in this game and you kind of think, actually, it was absolutely deserved because... They have hit such high levels under Roberto De Zerbi. They were so far off it in this game, despite the possession that they had to allow the goals that they did. And you almost feel like... I, I never really felt like Brighton were... Good enough's not really fair, consistent enough to really trouble the top six. I think they'll get close to it, but these games and some of the games in which they've dropped points throughout the season had always suggested to me that you couldn't really trust them. Against the big teams, you're like, yeah, Brighton will give them a good go. They'll probably win that game. And then they'll draw with Crystal Palace in a couple of matches or they'll drop some points against Bournemouth. And we'll also, and, and this, is the, this is the main thing. It goes under the radar because Brighton don't get the same publicity as a Manchester United dropping points or an Arsenal clearly in a title race or Liverpool or whatever. You know, when Brighton drop points... Listen, Brighton dropped, lost 5-1 yesterday. You know, had that happened to a team that we'd regularly seen in European football, I think it would be seen in a very different light. So, for me, I think there are still weaknesses. In Strangely, in games that you'd expect them to win, they, they kind of draw too many games against the teams in the bottom seven or eight. And, I think, and that I, will cost them. I think you're being slightly unfair. I think some of the points dropped by Brighton have come in uh, unfortunate circumstances where VAR has not gone their way. and Some. I think they've every, had a, they've had quite a lot that. of controversial every, decisions, yeah. more than most. Certainly, they've come in games where you thought, "Well, they're the better team. How come that happened?" You, some of the points have been dropped while they've been playing well. I don't, I don't think they've had games like this. Drew with Forest, Drew with Leicester, Drew with Leeds this season, Drew with Brentford this season. Lost three one to Nottingham Forest not too long ago, a couple of weeks back. Yeah, it's not, but it's these, not entirely. Not, it's not entirely that they. Dip because the opposition isn't as glamorous. It isn't entirely that, is all I'm saying. But I I think most people would have been... If I'd been a Brighton fan, I might I, I would never boo my own team, but I might have been a bit miserable because <laughs> they have... they are, they are st- I was there on Thursday night when they beat Manchester United with a 99th minute goal. I mean, it was... The atmosphere was absolutely astonishing because they'd played brilliant entertaining football and 
I can't go through all those points dropped and hand on heart say it, but I'm pretty sure they entertained while they were dropping them. Mm. And like, if there's a shame to this defeat, it's that it does mean they might not make Europe and I think they would light up Europe and Europe would not know what to make of them and it would be fantastic for the world of football if they were to qualify for European competition. So they've had one bad half. They played well in the second half, but it was a bit like they, their their home game against Fulham where it was complete one-way traffic. They, they get they get these periods where they're playing beautiful but they just can't just can't finish it. But they're still even in the second half. We're talking about 145 minutes of being drab. Even even in this defeat for 45 minutes, they played entertaining football. Still got five games, but three of them very difficult matches. Um, they go away to Arsenal and Newcastle in their next two. They then host Southampton, host Manchester City, who could be crown crown champions on that day. So you can imagine the pressure there. And then they go to Aston Villa on the final day. And that still might be an Aston Villa who are also chasing Europe. So it's not really an easy running for Brighton. That's maybe why in my heart of hearts I'm quite disappointed with their defeat. But there you go. Uh, a very important three points for Everton in this match who gave their chances of staying up a massive boost. The same too for Nottingham Forest who came out on top in a seven-goal thriller at the city ground, climbing out of the bottom three and leaving Southampton on the brink of relegation. It was a fantastic game, finished 4-3. Charlotte Dunker was at the game for the Times, and she joins us now. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, you all right? Very well. Uh, firstly, tell us, what was key to the victory? Well, I, I, anyone that watched that game, it was just so frantic. I think there was some really poor defending from both sides, but I think... Nottingham Forest really did show some quality in the way they attacked. We saw them on the counter-attack. Tywo Awanyi pulled out two finishes that personally I, I didn't even know he had in his locker having watching, watched in this season. So I think it was a bit of that. It was great and determination from Forest to get over the line as well. And um, they saw it through, but it was a really tense, nervy finish for them. Do you think Steve Cooper is finding another gear in this team? Because they have been playing quite well recently they haven't always got the results did you feel that it was going to come against Southampton and there is more to come in the rest of the season yeah I feel like there was a lot of pressure on them to, to win last night especially when you looked at the other results yesterday with Everton winning Leicester obviously losing and given that Southampton are bottom of the table I think there was sort of an expectancy given how good Forest home record is that they would just go there and beat Southampton so that is added pressure for a team who are fighting for their lives at the bottom of the table. But I think you're right in terms of they have improved in recent weeks. I thought they've looked better when they've gone to a back three, back five. Maybe if they'd gone to that earlier in the season, they would have picked up more points. And I know they reverted back to a back four last night, but they just he's just got to find a way to get over the line. I think they've been lucky with some of the points they've dropped recently they're, because their performances have improved. But... They've got three massive games coming up, Chelsea, Arsenal and Crystal Palace. So big three points, but they're definitely not over the line yet. What about Ruben Sellers? Uh, when you spoke to him afterwards, what, what kind of figure did he cut? Because it hasn't really worked with him in charge for Southampton. Looks like they are going down to the championship. Um, and he has to try and find some kind of positivity here, you know, just, you know, to give themselves a fighting chance where it will all be done in their next match. Yeah, I think there was a bit of realism from him and acceptance as well that him and his staff, I know they've only been there since February and Southampton were at the bottom of the table when they took over, but I think there was a belief that they could come in and turn things around. So him and his team are accepting of um, what they haven't been able to do, which they haven't been able to get them out of the bottom three. And now going forward, it's what's what is that? What is this team going to look like? Is he going to be the man in permanent charge? His contract's up at the end of the season. He said talks will be going on in the next few weeks when the picture becomes clearer about what's going to happen next season. He said he'd happily stay there for the next 10 years and it's up to the club. So be interesting to see if he's given the time, if he's given the budget and everything else to really put his mark on this team. But he's not been able to do what they hoped because they look, it looks inevitable that they're going to go down. Charlotte, can I just ask you, because you were there, so I watched it on TV and yeah. I wasn't, I couldn't make up my mind if I was 
utterly convinced that Southampton were going to get a, a very late goal to make it a draw and then make everyone stay unhappy. Did you, but in the stadium, did it feel possible? Because there was a, it felt yeah. like there was a brittleness there underlying the Forest performance. Yeah, especially if you go back the week before, I think it was Brentford, wasn't it? Um, Forest were winning 1-0 and then they conceded two in the last 10 minutes to lose. So I think they've definitely got form of throwing these results away and Southampton just kept peppering the box and McCarthy, the goalkeeper, came up and I think everyone, every Forest fan in the stadium was like holding their breath and I was watching Steve Cooper and he came into the press conference soaking wet because it was raining with this towel and I thought he looked like he needed a stiff drink and I'm not sure how how he's going to get through the next three games if Forest are going to do that to him and I don't support Forest or Southampton but you felt you felt the tension. It was nervous energy from everyone. And uh, yeah, given, like I said, given the way that Forrest have defended this season and the way they've given away sloppy goals, and especially that um, Felipe's goal was just offside, that would have made it um, 5-2. So um, yeah, tense end to the game, definitely. The the home form is something that people point to when it comes to Nottingham Forest. What was the atmosphere like? Um, Arsenal are the only team left to come to the city ground. Um, What kind of prospect will it be? Yeah, this sounds like a massive cliche, but it genuinely is a brilliant atmosphere. I'd say it's up there with one of the best that they've got in the league. They they sing with, with their flags and their scarves and their banners before kickoff. And one of the things that Steve Cooper always talks about in his press conferences is that even when Forrest have been playing poorly or they've gone behind, the fans still have their back. And he says that's really helped the team. So Arsenal are obviously going to go there um, for Forrest's last game of the season. Will the title be mathematically out of their hands by then? Who knows? That could help Forrest if it is, if Arsenal don't have anything to really play for anymore. But Arsenal are a great outfit, aren't they? I don't think they're they're going to be intimidated by a raucous uh, atmosphere at the city ground. But we have seen Forrest pick up some big points against big teams this season. So, yeah, it's going to be, they're going to hope to go out on a high anyway, the Forest fans at home. OK, Charlotte, appreciate you joining us to reflect on the match. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care. So, Tom... What did you make of it? Victory for Forest. They got over the line just about in the end. You know, it's it was a massively crucial three points. They had to win this game. Um, and they've still got work to do, but they've given themselves a great chance. They have. I think it was interesting that Charlotte, the first thing she picked out was the attack, um, counter-attacking Brennan Johnson, Morgan Gibbs-White and Ioni. You know, they, they played really, really well. Um, I was looking at the stats this morning. It's interesting to me how with all the changes, all the signings, all the... Um, tumultuous changes on and off the pitch at Forest that Brendan Johnson, obviously I'm going to mention him given his Lincoln <laughs> connections in the past, but 35 games played for them this season, age 21, more than any other player, 2,830 minutes, that's more than any other player as well. Morgan Gibbs-White is second in both of those rankings for Forest. So it's interesting to me that this player, who a young player, hugely talented, never played in the Premier League, in a squad that's got varying different levels of experience and talent, he's been the real star. And I think he was he epitomised what they did really well in this game. They were on the front foot. They were pressing really effectively. I think he was involved in all four of the goals, or at least three of them. Um, and so I think that that gives Forrest something to really hold on to in the coming games, that if those front three are firing, which Gibbs White and Brennan Johnson have been for most of the season, that's that's the most significant thing, and that whether they're playing Arsenal or whether they're playing other teams lower down the, the table, that'll be the most important thing, I think, for them. Huge win for Forest. Do you think they'll stay up? Oh, don't ask questions like that. <laughs> it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Because I don't, know, I don't now know what's going to happen at all. I think yes, okay, they ought to now because that might be enough. It might just be enough. Maybe they can get a point off Arsenal at home. I don't think that's ridiculous because it's a different they I think they played they do they play completely differently at home yeah. it's not just that they have the support they play differently and it's significant to me that I mean Charlotte des- described it beautifully that the way the fans are there so you you know it's already one of the you know the top grounds for an atmosphere and still the forest players when they get 
close to the crowd, they, they urge them on. They want even more of it, which proves that it's helping them be better and be braver. And there is that element of daring do about them, which you don't normally get from a team that's struggling at the bottom. So they've, there are enough ingredients there to say, yes, they'll do it, but uh, mm. it's a bit mad at the moment. I do think the Arsenal game is, you know, for the, for, it's almost like, I know there are three games left, but it almost feels like Forrest have one game left. Yes. Such is the difference in the in the home form. And they can beat anyone at home. We've seen that well, over, the, over the last couple yeah. of seasons. So, uh, look, Arsenal, the way they've played recently, you'd have to make them firm favourites. But you never know. And it's been a crazy season. and It could get even crazier. But I, I also look to the Palace game, even though it's away from home on the final day. And obviously Chelsea haven't been great, but I think Palace may be in party mode on the final day of the season and that would represent a big opportunity. I wonder if Roy Hodgson's a kind of manager as well to, to kind of leave everyone out and play some of the players in the squad and give them a game, uh, you know, to say thank you and fond farewell, etc, etc. So I, I do think there's a very strong chance that Nottingham Forest will stay up. There's absolutely no chance that Southampton are staying up. Um, and I know that next Monday we're probably going to be talking about it being done for them and it isn't yet done for them. So I don't want to go too deep on it. And we'll probably go into all of the reasons why, um, the deeper reasons why Southampton will get relegated. But just in a football footballing terms, um, and in this game in particular, why do you think they weren't at the level they needed to be? Goodness me. Uh, how, how far am I allowed to go back? Um, I think if you think about that squad, we talked a lot. Uh, you know, I just mentioned there, Forrest's attacking trio being, being on song. And you think about some of the other teams that might stay up, whether they've got an experienced manager, whether they've got um, made changes that have worked. Southampton, it's a combination and a culmination of lots of different aspects on and off the pitch that have left them kind of with a complete vacuum, really. There's no, there's nothing there that is the, is the thing that is going to keep them up, to me. Um, they made managerial changes that didn't work. Nathan Jones, obviously the most spectacular of those. The player-wise... It's a lot to ask. I think James Ward-Prowse is a wonderful player, but he's not quite, I don't think, the superstar level of a player that can kind of keep a team up on his own. Um, and then all around him is a lot of inexperience, a lot of youth, a lot of talented young players, but it's it's just not enough. So that is where it's slightly unraveled for them. And also, you know, we talked then about Forrest, about them having the thing of, being brilliant at home, I don't know what necessarily Southampton's mm. thing has been in terms of performance. They have, they've had, they briefly, very briefly, and a little bit under Ruben Sellers, they made big performances away from home against big teams. Their their thing, but then they didn't necessarily get the the points. For example, in that Arsenal game, they were they were leading and ended up drawing the game. So they never really had a oh, this is what Southampton have got that could keep them up, other than James Ward-Prowse being superb at set pieces. So that that to me is probably uh, a, a very rounded answer not mm. a specific but there we go that's what I was thinking when you asked me so it looks like Southampton are going to be relegated and the only question is really who will join them of course we spoke a little bit earlier on about Everton Leicester's survival hopes suffering a blow uh, this was a 5-3 defeat at Fulham the Foxes into the relegation zone they're two points from safety with three games remaining and they have a tough run in. They're at home to Liverpool next, away at Newcastle. They then host West Ham on the final day. For me, if they do go down, I've got to say it, the draws with Leeds and Everton in the past two games will be what cost them. I know Leicester fans will say there were some incredibly good chances against them in those matches, which meant the result could have gone the other way. But equally, I think Leicester had enough chances in the match that they could have absorbed those and still won the game. Defensively, though, in this match, they were not good enough. And it made, it made me really reflect on selling Wesley Fofana and whether that was worth the money that they've brought in because um, they bought in Valt Face and he's an unproven player in the Premier League. He also cost about £15 million. So you replaced your £80 million centre-half with a £15 million centre-back. The likes of Soyonchu, you know, drafted back into the team under Dean Smith who hadn't been deemed good enough before, and the investment in Yannick Vestergaard, even though it was a squad player, shows you that in that area, they haven't had enough. Daniel Amati playing centre-back in the Premier League for far too long. Gregor's bugbear, obviously, as you all know. Um, but it's that area of the pitch, I think, that will cost them. I know the midfield 
has had issues. Some players, some want away players, some had their heads turned by big bids. Um, there just hasn't been that, that cohesion. But every time you see the squad in general, you think there are more than enough good players for Leicester to not be in this situation, even if their defence wasn't great this year. Um, ultimately, I, I, I guess a bit like Southampton, we may well end the season reflecting on kind of half a dozen major issues that have led to this point. Um, I, I, and again, look, they're not they're not yet down, so I don't want to ref- be too glum about them, but um, they were awful in this game. And uh, actually, the scoreline's quite flattering. I was I was at, at Craven Cottage, and it was uh, it was utterly bizarre. Uh, Fulham, Fulham players' legs functioned better than the Leicester players' legs. They, <laughs> I mean, it was everything. They looked like they'd had a proper service, and they'd been oiled, and they were running properly. <laughs> and Leicester's legs looked like they were made of wood or metal, and were rusting and it creaking. It it was really strange and there was I think Tom you said something about Fulham having being on the beach or having something not much to play for actually Fulham have quite a lot to play for they 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 would like to finish above Chelsea this season that that means a hell of a lot in fact all the chants were aimed at John Terry in the dugout by the Fulham fans so that it definitely does matter that they are doing better than Chelsea this season but they they certainly had that sense of freedom they really enjoyed their football had a great time and Leicester just did not know what to do. Did not know what to do. They were, uh, their shape was appalling. Their body language was appalling. As I said, they didn't look like they knew how to run, actually make their legs function anymore. It, uh, ridiculously one-sided game. They they did get into it more because Fulham kept insisting on little flicks and tricks and being a bit self-indulgent and not concentrating enough themselves. Uh, so, which, which all makes for a very thrilling game. But but significantly, away from the entertainment, um, afterwards, Dean Smith said he didn't see it coming. That on the training ground, he sees a, t- a team that are very good and very talented. And he's been telling them how talented they are, they are. I suspect he needs to change his message because when every time a goal went in, you looked at the, the Leicester players and they all had that look about them where they're like, well, it's not down to me, is it? I'm, I'm surrounded by idiots. So it's if you're telling players they're really good, they haven't got that, that glue which binds them together that they've got something to fight for. James Madison said afterwards, we lacked hunger. Is that because you've been told how good you are and that this was going to be a relatively simple game where you could you could outshine silly little Fulham? That it's they're not they don't look cohesive they don't even look like they know truly know they're in a relegation battle and if they do know then what it's doing to them is paralyzing them rather than inspiring them so uh, there's a hell of a lot of work to do in psychological terms too because you're not going to make those defenders you've outlined you better but what you can do is give them a sense of well hunger and fight and just accept they're in but their their running is a, is is so so difficult so difficult so that i even though their goal difference would speak of a team that's surely too good to go down i think they will yeah, i do think that in a way the difficulty of the matches to come makes it easier tactically <laughs> do you know what I mean well, there, but there is a point with these fixtures it was reeling off these fixtures and I've you know, made all my notes and went through and picked out all the fixtures they've got to come and then actually I'm thinking about it sat here and you're talking about Everton smashing Brighton and things like that and you're like, I'm like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter who anyone's <laughs> playing it's all out the window I'm saying Fulham are on the beach Alison's saying they're brilliant it, they're, they're, all those things can be true it's, it's all nonsense who, who the hell knows we shouldn't even look at the fixtures no but do you know what I mean <laughs> if you you're Dean Smith, you're like, right, this is the plan for three very tough games. We're going to mm. play on the counter-attack. We're going to keep it tight. We're going to play narrow. You know, we, we basically can't make any mistakes. So if you get the ball, Valfez, put it in Rose Ed. Yeah, you know, I see what you mean. Yeah. In, in terms of your approach to the games, that's it. You know, you, you play on the counter-attack, you try and keep tight, and you tell the players that basically you need to fight for your lives because we are, we are in a relegation battle. We are about to go down. And I don't mind if we literally claw out the eyes of the opposition and win three games 1-0 or even draw three games one all. You know, it, it's something that we need to do to stay in the Premier League. Because we can't think, oh, if we go out and play to our best, we'll win this game. 
Because actually, that, that, that's not going to happen. You, you see what I mean? In terms You're of, agreeing with me. Yeah, yeah, I'm agreeing with you. In terms of when I say playing to our best, obviously if you play to your best, you win games, not like that. To play the way that we want, the style that we want, what's brought our success over the last few years and won us an FA Cup or James Madison, if you just take yourself back to that player that was stringing through beautiful passes and Harvey Barnes, if you just keep running at people and using your speed and, and some some dribbling ability, I don't want to see any of that. I want to see, keep it tight. I want to see eight players basically sit behind the ball and I want two of you up there who basically, we will long it to you and you chase it down. Jamie Vardy, if Ian Atcher comes back from injury, you know, whoever you've got, it, Harvey Barnes, you know, that, that's the game plan. But has, Cause... He, has he been undermined? Because before this game, Dean Smith pointed out the fact that they'd gone 19 games without a clean sheet, which is a European record. So post-World Cup that they're the team that cannot keep a clean sheet. And he said the secret... I'm amazed he said this, really. He said the secret to staying up is to keeping a, is keeping a clean sheet. And after he says this, they let in five goals at Craven Cottage. So that there's now a huge gulf between... <laughs> so it's now 20 games on the trot. And to go from conceding five goals, and it could have been more, to suddenly making a clean sheet thing you need well clearly that's not going to work they're not going to keep a clean sheet are they they're gonna have to somehow ah find a way of crystallizing what happened at craven cottage but making sure they just um switch on sooner and as you say Hugh, fight a bit more and be a bit more basic about it because they were incredibly passive and i've seen them be passive most of the season and i put it down to Originally, I put it down to Brendan Rodgers sort of knowing that his time was going to be up at some point. So he wasn't giving it that project idea that everyone was just sort of floating around wondering what was going to happen next season and thinking of themselves and not the club, manager included. But now they've got a proper target, which is to somehow fight for survival. But there was no... It's very strange. Given the connection between... the players and the fans at Leicester and the fairy tale they've been through it just seems rather odd that they haven't got that in them to keep that history going We talk about conceding chances as well and you prompted me to look up the stat that I kind of incorrectly uh, quoted earlier, Everton had 23 chances and as Gregor was saying on the previous show in that two-all draw, when the hell have Everton ever had 23 shots this season? And then they go and score a load of goals in the next game it's like Leicester, the perfect prep to try and work out how you're attacking um, play can go Alison I wanted to ask about because in that in that Thursday show last week we were talking about Vardy and that idea that maybe he could be the trump card he's looked dangerous against Everton um Charlotte Dunker wrote a piece last week as well talking about the fact that he's still there he's still in some senses their talisman particularly now there's no Kasper Schmeichel did he did he embody all the things you talked about the kind of wooden leggedness the kind of slightly lost performance no that was that was mainly midfield and defense he He's still Jamie Vardy. He was still, you know, he was whispering to the referee at the start, you know, having a because the game was delayed by three minutes because of um, some sort of technical issue with the pack they wear on their arms. And, you know, who's going to have a little word with the referee about it? It's going to be Jamie Vardy. You know, what's he saying? He's saying something. He's just reminding people he's around, you know. And he was like that all game. Little, you could see he was talking to people and he was nudging people. And making runs. And he did look he did look like it mattered to him. I mean, he missed a penalty. That's that doesn't mean you, you that might mean he'd care too much if you miss a penalty. I'm not saying that affect that might means he doesn't care. But he, he I mean it's sad to say, but he is a faded version mm. of the Jamie Vardy we we all we all admired enormously. I I think he's giving it his all, but he just doesn't have as much to give. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about the thing I was talking about with um Southampton and the idea of what have they got? What is their what is the trump card that could keep them up? And you look at the teams mm. in the bottom three at the minute, and you think these are the t- and Leicester are probably the only ones of those three that have got a trump card. Yes. But, but it's an it's an aging Jamie Vardy they, probably they, or a James uh, Madison a James who Madison. seems to play one brilliant game and then yeah. one awful game. So yeah. they're the things where you start to wonder: Would I take Would I take Jordan Pickford and Dominic Calvert Lewin and Dwight McNeil and a well drilled Everton team, or would I take this Leicester team who are a bit wishy washy? And I've got some fading stars or a couple of players who are thinking, hmm, I wonder whether I fancy Newcastle or Man United next season. You know, which one would I rather have? I'd probably rather have Everton. It's going to be an awful week for Leicester. Just doing shape. 
just doing distances, <laughs> just doing shadow play. They're probably not going to see a ball for the rest of the week, to be perfectly honest, because it's just going to be all about keeping our spaces and making sure we, we're tight and defending properly because after conceding five... It's a big week for John Terry, that's for sure. <laughs> and his coaching credentials. Because, yeah, I mean, if they, yeah. if, they can, if they can do it, then they've got former England captain and Chelsea legend, like, he's in the coaching team. Can Presumably sign, that's what he's there that's for. A, that's a free transfer. Can he sign a little short-term deal? Oh, for goodness me, don't tempt him. I don't know. All the could. jokes about the kit would be too much to take. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All <laughs> oh, right, OK, let's continue our conversation about the Premier League, but go to the top of the table next. Um, Arsenal, um, reducing Manchester City's lead at the Premier League Summit back to one point. They came out on top in a great game at, at Newcastle United. Um, Arteta's side have played one game more than City, but I think responded very, very well to the pressure that City had put on by beating Leeds the day before. I think a lot of people basically had seen Arsenal's trip to Newcastle as a massive hurdle. And this is one that they leapt over, flew over. Um, and it's it's weird. It, it, you know, I watched this game and thought this is exactly what I thought was going to happen after the Manchester City game. And it is everything that we've spoken about in terms of the pressure of the City game maybe affecting the Arsenal players. Because in the game since, I went to the Chelsea game and I thought Arsenal were brilliant, clearly, um, to go 3-0 up very early. But also, they were brilliant in this game at Newcastle United as well. And some of the football was absolutely sensational. And maybe they prefer, maybe the pressure has come off them and maybe they prefer being chasers in this title race. Maybe that will help them stay with City, if you like, you know, if they need to win every game and then hope that City and the extra games that they have can drop the ball. Because um, at the moment, you, you, you kind of think Arsenal aren't going to be beaten. You also think Manchester City aren't going to be beaten. But City clearly have more on their plate. Yeah, it's definitely been a good response to that City defeat. I think if you describe it, if the analogy is them hurdling, then they definitely nicked the hurdle on the way through, didn't they? Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> they left it dangling and then it stayed upright. Thank God for that. Um, because Newcastle were brilliant as well, I thought. They, they put in the performance that their recent form suggests. I think when you talk about Arsenal coming through these games, players like Jorginho, incredible experience. It's interesting that Arteta's put him in over Thomas Partey, who's been such a big part of their season um, in the early parts of the campaign. Martin Odegaard as well, I think, has kind of stepped up since that City game. A few people, Gregor included, kind of right, quite rightly saying, OK, that's the next thing to add to your game. Huge performances in big games against big teams. He was superb against Newcastle, obviously brilliant against Chelsea as well, and getting goals. So I think they're two big factors that both experienced players who've done it elsewhere are having a say. And then, you know, your kind of captain talisman figure of this young group, the, the guy that kind of embodies it the most is stepping up which is which is impressive because I do I, I do as listeners know I'm a big fan of Mikel Arteta and what he's done with Arsenal this season but there is also a little bit of an element of where it does look tired at times there was a moment um I think in the first half where Bukayo Saka had the ball on the right Ben White overlapped and the way Saka fainted inside onto his left there was just a slight lethargy about it like how many times have I done this so many times like right, I've fainted onto the left right what am I going to do whip it in the top corner or nick it to the back post Ben oh I've missed you sorry you know and that's nothing on Saka but they, they've just played with such relentless intensity all season that it, it, it does feel a little bit like they're playing in moments Arsenal rather than complete performances moments like Odegaard moments like Jorginho stepping up and dictating the play for 10 minutes but that but don't get me wrong they're still they're still brilliant but I would I wonder whether they're going to have enough to keep going to keep to keep City honest to all the way to the end of the season now well, I think they have I think they've they've come through it's like childbirth you know you've come through <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll have to tell us I'm no, no there's idea. a moment there's a moment where you think this is impossible and then some it's a merit then a miracle happens and all things seem possible and they I look at Arsenal and see them like that. They were the reason this was such an impressive performance was first of all it was at St James's Park, which is a horrible place to go. It's a horrible place to watch football actually because of the light on the shadows on the 
pitch. I don't like it at all. And um, but they 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 managed to combine elegant football, so occasionally beautiful football and incisive football, with a lot of time wasting and niggling and just annoying everybody and giving back what Newcastle give out all the time. I mean, I think Newcastle are very good at time wasting and moaning and being in the ear of the fourth official and just generally being the most irritating team in the universe. But Arsenal did it to them and and Newcastle did not like it one bit. And also, Newcastle were very good for the first opening eight, nine minutes and you did think, oh my goodness, you know, this could be the end of the title race completely. Could Arsenal crumble? The fact that they didn't, the fact that they took a deep breath and absorbed that early pressure and then managed to impose their style on the game in sections, not all the way through. That that was It was really grown up and it felt like my hairdresser's an Arsenal fan. <laughs> and he says to me, even if Arsenal win the title, he's not going to be overjoyed because he says, I know we're not the best team in the land. And that's partly because City have outclassed them more than once. So he thinks, well... The best team is City. Can we get him on? He must be the only pragmatic <laughs> Arsenal fan in the country, isn't he? That's outrageous, Colin. Good on him, but... but well, that's how that's how we feel. I can understand him feeling like that. And it makes you wonder about... Well, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Because if Arsenal were to actually get the title because City were distracted by their own beauty because of the Champions League... And have are Arsenal really the best team in the land? And it, so it makes you makes you think. It makes you think. But I think that there's a freedom to them having failed their tests against Manchester City, and they now think, well, that was as bad as it's going to get. They are the best team. Maybe they deep down all know City are the best team, and the only way they're going to take the title is with a bit of luck, but with just putting every effort into every game left. And I felt that. That's exactly what they did against Newcastle, and good on them. I think I don't. I don't now expect them to suffer a blip. It's all about whether City. Do. Uh, I, I tend to agree, but I did say after the City game, if Arsenal win all five games, I think they'll win the title. Because yeah, I think there's a pep dip coming. You can see it. He's calling it Everton. He's going to play a, back three. It's the rotation. It's the rotation. <laughs> I, th- I do think a rotation and a bit of injury and a bit of fatigue and um, the pressure will be on Manchester City and. Um, you know, drawing a couple of games is is in there. I just think Arsenal now, it's not just about winning the last three games. They're going to have to score a lot of goals as well and hope that it comes down to, to goal difference and maybe they can pit Manchester City in that area. The other thing, just going back to Alison's excellent point is that, and, and her hairdresser's excellent point, is that <laughs> if if Arsenal, and Tom Allnut made this point on Thursday's show, if if they can kind of finish strongly and finish second with wins like this of this nature against a really strong Newcastle side away from home then you and and if then you can say the only reason we didn't win the title was that we were beaten twice by Manchester City that means your season is a significant elevation from last year they can go into the summer being like right the next target is that we win those games against City and we win the title that it, it changes the narrative that's my there you go, favorite word on the podcast mm. but it makes it still a brilliant season where the, they were finished second, they were everyone's favourite team, they gave us a title race that we wouldn't have had otherwise, and they just fell short of an amazing title because they weren't quite as good as no, no, this no, Manchester City. That's going to happen. Bright, Brighton are everybody's favourite second team. Come on. Well, true, true. And as long as they finish the season strongly, that's all I'm saying. You know, these things these things can change quickly. It was interesting. Great stat. Martinelli and Erdegaard both scored 15 goals in the Premier League this season. That's the first time that Arsenal have had two players score 15 or more goals in a Premier League season, which I find incredible mm. given the forward players, the attacking players that have played for Arsenal down the years. Um, yeah. But there you go. Very good season from both of them. I hate to say it, Erdegaard is my player of the year. He's mine too. Yeah, I mean, I just... It'll be interesting to see if, if Haaland gets it, but, you know, especially... Haaland will get it, uh, but I voted for Erdegaard because he's more interesting to watch. Is that are you allowed to say that you voted for him? I can is that say is it, it, it's not a private vote? I can okay. say what I want. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move swiftly on. Very good win for Arsenal. Um, Manchester United are in a massive dip. Uh, howler from David de Gea, gifting West Ham victory, massive victory for West Ham, boosting their Premier League survival hopes. 
but the defeat will hurt Manchester United's top four chances. David Moyes' side are seven points clear of the relegation zone and they have a much better goal difference to the sides below them. Manchester United just a point ahead of Liverpool in fifth. They beat Brentford, although United do have a game in hand. But it is worth asking the question, what is going wrong for Manchester United? Because it is turning into a disastrous end to the season. Uh, Only four wins in their last 10 Premier League matches. Interesting stat as well. United have only picked up one point in their eight away games against the sides currently ninth and above in the Premier League. Um, That is the joint fewest of any side with with those fixtures. Same as Nottingham Forest. And obviously we know how bad their away record has been. So maybe I've got the answer to what's going wrong for Manchester United. Part of me wants to... I do what I always do. Barb <laughs> <laughs> me wants to. And, and, cri- and criticise the squad. But actually, I wanted to ask you all whether there are question marks over what Eric Ten Hag has been doing because it is has been easy for several years, if not longer, to blame the players at Manchester United. And I do think there's a lack of quality that's been shown in the last 10 matches with some injuries that Manchester United have had, most notably the two centre-half, first-choice centre-halves, Verano Martinez, getting injured but um, I think Casemiro getting his ban Ericsson being injured it it meant that kind of the spine of the team was severely disrupted Um, but ultimately they are subpar Manchester United at this point in time I think they've scored three goals in the last six games in all competitions so you know it's clearly a pattern that they're just underperforming at the moment yeah and I think you're right to pick out Ten Hag. I remember talking after the um, cup final win against Newcastle and describing that moment as like a checkpoint in his Manchester United time that whatever happens this season they can go back to that. He's won a trophy. That's a huge moment. But I mean if they don't get in the top four I would argue that that checkpoint is is null and void. It'd be almost um, completely pointless because it'd be such a disaster. And I mentioned there about Arsenal and narrative. If the narrative of United season becomes that it unravels completely and they finish fifth that would be pretty awful in terms of um, where they were. A lot of people thought, oh, they've got third sewn up. We're going to beat City in the final, win two domestic cups. No chance. I think it's interesting that you pick out Casemiro, Martinez, and, you know, that kind of idea of a spine of the team, and then you highlight goals, because ultimately that then comes down to Marcus Rashford. They've really only had, to me, four, five exceptional players this season, and that those five players have carried them. Casemiro... Martinez, Luke Shaw, Rashford, maybe Ericsson, maybe Fernandez, a combination of the two whenever they've been fit. I, that is ultimately where they're at. Can is that then Ten Hag's fault for not coming up with other ways of playing with other players? You know, Paul Hurst, he must have written Anthony Marshall can he be the answer about 53 times in his time as a Manchester correspondent for the Times. But that is what he's dealing with. You know, there's a pe- um, new story in the Times this morning about Val Vakos maybe getting another deal as a backup striker. You know, he 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 works very hard. He's a lovable guy. I, he's one of my favourite additions to a top six team ever. But he's not. Re- he's he's part of that reason they're not scoring goals because he's your main talisman and main striker. So I don't know whether it's I don't know whether it is Ten Hag's fault. But you've got to say he's known this was the situation. You'd imagine there was a different plan or at least some kind of alternate plan because he, he's relied a lot on a core group of players who I think have just run out of steam. I don't, I don't like the way United cope with away games at all. I don't like their attitude to them. There's, it's as though they're too posh to accept that things can happen in an atmosphere and that the team they're playing against will lift their game for the arrival of Manchester United. I think Ten Hag tries to keep them steady and level. He's a very level person. He was asked about the importance of the West Ham game ahead of it and that it could be a critical one in terms of securing their top four place. And he he said the right words, which were, it is absolutely essential for a club of Manchester United's stature to finish in the Champions League places. But there was no... The way he is, there's no, there was no passion in that. It was like he was reading a spreadsheet and he was an accountant. It wasn't... It was almost like, well, He's we not, are big, he, we are good mm. and our our brilliance will come out regardless of where we're playing. Sometimes you have to accept what's happening in the stadium you're visiting and what it means to them. So you, you they often... The players often look slightly flummoxed or petulant about it, that 
the mood of the place is is lifting those around them. Then they hadn't trained for it to be like that. It's it's almost like when when you're going to learn that an away game requires a different set of a different skill set. We Manchester United lack passion away from home. I do think that kind of mirrors the demeanour of the manager. I've got to say they, they've kind of injected a. Uh, you know, someone who is very tactical, who has a, a, a blackboard and a piece of chalk at the front of the classroom and who's ready to come up with the solution. But ultimately, he doesn't inject passion into the room. It's not the school of rock, let's put it that way, when Eric Ten Hag is in charge. And I, I do think Manchester United are kind of like, oh, we, we, we basically think they'll show up to games away from home. I, again, I don't want to go into a massive rant criticising them, but I do think Eric Ten Hag needs to find a solution with the players that he's got. Um, because I, at this point in time, I know a lot of the reaction to the result was to blame the Glazers, blame the ownership group once again. Um, it's their fault that this is going on. We should have more depth in the squad. There should be more quality in all of these things going back and back. But um, I think Manchester United have enough to score a goal at West Ham. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, had they lost 5-0, you know, we might be talking about bigger things, but Manchester United are just a little bit off it. I do think they're running out of steam, but ultimately they're they're also not playing well. Running out of steam was on the manager, in my opinion, because there have been times where Manchester United needed to rotate more than they did. When a lot of the players who were out at the moment were fit, you felt they needed a little bit of a rest, you know, leave them out one game in six, bring in a Victor Lindelof while all of your best players are there, so he's got support around him. It was all or nothing. All of the best players on the pitch, Manchester United can get results. When all the best players are off the pitch, obviously they can't, and we've known that from seasons gone by. Um, but I think one of the other reactions is obviously to think about the summer. You have big-name Manchester United ex-players talking about the lack of of um, direction over who's going to be taking over the club. Clearly is stunting the ability to recruit well and get you know their ducks in a row in terms of the summer and... Again, I, I do think those inside the club, you know, there's always money at Manchester United. Even the Glazers have spent, what, I think it's 10% less than Manchester City over the last six years. I mean, it's, you know, it's a billion quid, basically. They've always spent plenty of money. They've spent plenty of money badly. The question is, those at the club, who I imagine will still be the people in charge if there's a new owner in the short term, they still have to make the same decisions for the summer. They're still going to be looking at the same players. The question about whether they can get them or not is, is really the only difference. So I, in that regard, I think it's kind of an excuse for the manager once again. And I like Eric Ten Hag, but ultimately you, you start. But you're to starting th- to turn his way, so. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm seeing a, a good manager with some good players. You know, uh, when Liverpool are hurtling up behind you, and you and they and they have had, apparently had such a torrid season. You know, I start to think, what's the difference between them and us? Yeah, they've got okay. They've got a Mo Salah. They've got a couple of world class players. A Van Dijk on their day. I get that, but Manchester United have a lot. Again, they have a lot of good players. You can make excuses for them. There are very good players in the Manchester United squad. But Liverpool have Jurgen Klopp. Ultimately, mm. you know. That, so who's that, going to finish fourth? Then we've got one, a fan from each. Hugh, who's fourth? United. Liverpool. He says, looking at Alison Rudd across the studio. Alison, who's fourth? I, I feel out of politeness. You have I should to say, say United. United, and then we walk into the sunset together. But no, I, I am now envisaging Alison winning a header against Southampton in the 92nd minute, and it's being Liverpool. Mm, yeah, I mean, look. There you go. Though for me, look, the fixtures are kind to Manchester United in all seriousness. Fixtures so. don't matter. We've been no, through no, this. No, they, they, but, but in terms of the home form, they do, because Manchester United have three home games basically left. And if they win those games, they will be. In the, in the Champions League, they'll finish above Liverpool. So, do I think they'll win the home games? Yes. Do I think they'll play well? No. So, I think it will still be seen as a drab end to the season where Manchester United limp over the line and finish, I imagine, a, a point above Liverpool. And that will be seen as a success. They'll probably lose 4-1 in the cup final after that and then it'll be negative headlines a week later. So, so you've changed your prediction? If you're asking me, my prediction yeah. was based on who's the better team right now. The reason I said Liverpool was, in my heart of hearts, who's going to finish the season better from here on out? Liverpool are. Will it be? And you did a quick bit of maths, and you were like, "No." Nah, will it be? It'll be will right. it be enough to close the gap? No. I, again, I think they'll finish a point behind us. That's my prediction. Man United win their games at home, but it will not shock me if we don't and Liverpool finish above us. Basically, I also don't think Liverpool have been as good as their six wins in a row suggest. No, they haven't. That's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Um, was, was that me sitting on the fence by giving both answers? I think it, it, it was. Greg is not on, though, so we needed you. 
Right, before we go, you mentioned the man himself, Gregor Robertson. He joins us on the line because there is something special for Gregor Robertson to discuss. He's basically hit the high point of his illustrious career. He's gone even higher than those great games he played for the likes of Grimsby and Nottingham Forest because he has covered the 92 grounds of the English Football League and Premier League as well. They've all been ticked off. He did it this weekend at Bristol Rovers. But Gregor, it was all by accident, wasn't it? <laughs> that was the overriding feeling, yeah. I thought, how on earth did it come to this? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, growing, I, I said in the piece, growing up in, in Scotland, I kind of, I'd never heard of half of these places. And then, like, for the first half of my life, and then the second half of my life, I just found myself sitting at the Mem, uh, thinking I was plotting a lot of the second half of my life uh, through visits as a player or as a writer to these grounds. But uh, I've loved it as well. Tell us, tell us about the final game. What were the emotions? Um, it was, it was a good place to end, I think, because the the mem is like uh, home of Bristol Rovers is kind of sums up how uh, restless the '92 is, in that it's only been Bristol Rovers home for 27 years. Uh, the one before that, which is the longest of, I think, eight homes altogether, burned down in a fire. Um, and they're also got plans to move to another home in, in the east of the city uh, in, the, in the years ahead. So, like, doing the 92 is no mean feat. And as some people uh, have said to me after reading this piece, you know, it, it costs a lot of money, it takes a lot of years, and I don't think I've paid for one ticket. So, you know, as a Scot- <laughs> Scotsman, I'm also quite happy about that. Um, but, but have you but paid yeah, for your tie and lapel pin? I've <laughs> not yet. I've got oh, to actually. That is so because, stingy. No, because I've got to, the rules state that I have to um, fill out every game in, in alphabetical order. So not not like chronologically, in alphabetical order of, uh, you know, the clubs in the 92 and a date and a time, I think even a score. So it's quite, that's also no mean feat itself. Christ, so knowing I'm how sure... long it takes you to file your copy, you're going to be doing that for <laughs> weeks. Yeah, fair point. No, so I, I'm sure we'll get around to that and I'll, I'll bring in the tie and the lapel to show you guys. It's absolutely lovely. It is. Can you uh, just uh, listen? It's good. It's a weird one because some of the games you played in, some of the games you watched. Which what's your which was your favourite ground? Do you know to play when people ask me that, I always say Kenilworth Road, and and like people laugh because <laughs> it's it's like a you know it's ramshackle, you know corrugated iron patched together, the famous uh, you know archway between a terrace house that. You know, and then you're, you're going up steps to look in someone's back garden as you get into one of the stands. It's a dump, but I absolutely loved playing there because this t- the stands were so tight to the pitch. It felt like a real proper old ground. It was tight. The fans were right on top of you. Great atmosphere. And same same was true of um, Fratton Park, uh, Pompey, home, home of Portsmouth. Mm. Um, so I liked those tight grounds, those tight old grounds. Accrington Stanley less so because you could hear the individual... Uh, cries from from the few from the few hundred fans there so they weren't always very kind so uh, those, those as a player i like the old grounds like that and um as a journalist that uh, as i said in the piece bloomfield road stood out because of the remarkable ups and downs uh in my time as a journalist that that that, that uh, blackpool have endured and you see kind of how important supporters are actually you know i've seen obviously after retiring as i suddenly saw football through supporters' eyes when you saw the Hardy fans boycotting for the fourth year outside their own club as um, just before a, a plum FA, top, uh, FA Cup tie against Arsenal. That was like the saddest thing I've ever seen. And then a few a few months later, when Owen Oyston was finally gone, their much maligned owner, uh, the, the crowd, as they scored a 96-minute equaliser, spilling onto the pitch, many of them in tears, was probably the happiest thing I've ever seen inside a football ground. So that they stand out, but there are many, many, uh, obviously. As I said in the piece, there's like an associated memory with just about every single ground in the 92. So it's uh, it's been quite a journey. Gregor, appreciate your memories. Thank you for joining us. I know he's celebrating a Scottish Premiership victory for Celtic today as well. So uh, thanks for giving up your time uh, and joining us on the Game Podcast. 
And that is it for today's episode of the Game Podcast. So, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, thank you very much for being great company once again. Thank you all for listening. It's Tuesday, so slightly different. We'll be back very, very soon reacting to the semi-finals in the Champions League. Manchester City taking on Real Madrid tonight. We'll have an all-Italian affair. AC Milan against Inter Milan as well. Big, big derby match there. And of course, another big weekend of Premier League football to look ahead to. But make sure you check out all of our great articles reacting to the weekend and of course, looking ahead to City's big semi. Uh, in the game right now, uh, you can also check it out online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Pick up a paper as always. You can download the Times app wherever you get your apps from as well. We'll be back with you on Thursday. We'll see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.